The Scottish evangelist Oswald Chambers once said, All of God's people are ordinary people who have been made extraordinary by the purpose He's given them. That's truth. Yet, if you're a Christian, I wonder today if you actually believe that. I wonder if you believe that you are truly an extraordinary person living an extraordinary life when you're in Christ. And the reason I, I wonder about that is because if you do believe that, then you'll live like it. Your life will actually reflect that belief. And yet there are so many Christians who actually don't live that way. They, they don't see their lives as extraordinary, and they especially don't see themselves as extraordinary people, even though God's word couldn't be any clearer on the matter. You are a chosen race, you, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. First Peter 2.9, he says, you're a child of God. Galatians 3.26, he says, you're a friend of Jesus. John 15, 15, you're a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, you're a temple where the Spirit of God lives. 1 Corinthians 6.19, you are the crown of his creation. Ephesians 2.10, do you believe that? Do you really believe it? You're, you're completely forgiven and cleansed, he says, from all sin. 1 John 1, 9, you're a citizen of heaven. Philippians 3.20, created in the likeness of God himself. Ephesians 4.24, he says you're God's messenger to the world. Acts 1.8, I wonder if you believe that today. Do you believe it? Would you like me to keep going? Okay, he says you, you are chosen by God. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.4, you're no longer a slave, but an heir of God. Galatians 4.7, you're set free in Christ. Galatians 5.1, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 1.13, you are greatly loved by God. Ephesians 2.4, and you're more than a conqueror through Christ. Romans 8.37, I wonder if you believe that today. That's just to name a few, by the way. And yet, honestly, I wonder sometimes if you believe that. Because, listen, as wonderful as that list is that describes you, if you're in Christ, none of that will affect the way that you see yourself or the way that you live your life one bit if you don't believe it. Okay? If you want to experience the full measure of what God has done in your life, then you have to believe that He's done it. The truth is, belief is actually one of the most powerful motivating forces in the entire human experience. What you believe shapes the way that you live, right? If, if you didn't believe that you were, you were going to get a, a paycheck from your employer, then you probably wouldn't go to that job every day. But you do go to work every day because you believe you're going to get paid. We get in our cars and we drive places because we believe that car is going to get us where we need to go. We get married because we love the person we're marrying and we believe they're going to love us back. We make purchases based on what we believe we need or what we believe will make us happy or what we believe will improve our lives. Right? We, we, we make decisions every single day 
little decisions and big decisions that shape our lives based on what we believe. And of course, it's the same with our Christian faith. How we live as Christians is based not on, uh, not on what we say we believe, but on what we actually believe about Jesus Christ and his word and what that word says about us. And so regardless of what is coming out of our mouths, if our actions, the way we're living, does not line up with what we say we believe, then you understand we don't actually believe what we say we do. And I'm not talking about perfection. You with me? I'm I'm talking about conviction. At our core, what we truly believe determines the convictions that we live by, mistakes and all. Which means if you do actually believe that his word is true, then your life fundamentally won't look the same as those who do not believe that his word is true. It can't look the same because the Bible defines the truth and reality and reason and purpose for our entire existence. And it happens to be extraordinary, by the way. Yet it's not only extraordinary, it is also antithetical. It is the opposite of what the world says our truth and reality and reason and purpose for existing is, which means categorically, you cannot honestly believe that God's word is true. Assuming you understand what it says about you, you cannot believe God's word is true and still live like the rest of the world who does not believe that it's true. Because when you believe when you truly believe in Jesus Christ and his word and what it says about you and what it says about your life, when you believe all of that, your life changes drastically because the base convictions, the the foundational moorings that you live by fundamentally change, which is when your life becomes something truly extraordinary, something so extraordinary that you can't help but share it with other people, which is exactly what we're going to see in our story today as we complete our study through the gospel according to Mark. And look, if you're a Christian today, and yet you don't see yourself as an extraordinary person living an extraordinary life, then this message actually should trouble you deeply. Because you understand, Jesus died a horrible death so that you could live an extraordinary life. Don't waste it. Don't waste it by not believing what he said about you or what he did for you. Pastor and author R.C. Sproul says, it's one thing to believe in God. It is quite another to believe God. You see, if you're going to live the extraordinary life that he created you to live, then you're going to have to believe everything that he said about you and everything that he did for you, which is what makes your life extraordinary. But you understand, you have to believe it. So this is the very lesson he's teaching his disciples in this final chapter of Mark's gospel. So let's pick the story up where we left off last time at Mark chapter 16, and we'll begin by reading the first eight verses. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on, in the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. 
And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. You see the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So uh, back in chapter 15, we know that Jesus was crucified and buried in a tomb that was owned by Joseph of Arimathea, which was hewn into the side of a wall of rock. It was uh, basically a man-made cave with the opening covered by a massive round stone that was fitted into a groove uh, or a channel in the rock beneath it so that it could be rolled back and forth to allow access to the tomb. And yet, because of the size and weight, it was a major ordeal to actually have one of those stones moved. It required no small amount of manpower. And being prohibited from touching a dead body or doing the work of preparing a body on the Sabbath, according to the Mosaic law here, as chapter 16 opens up, Mark says, when the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. In other words, uh, these women who were there at Jesus' crucifixion, they were there at Jesus' death, uh, they were there at Jesus' burial, they're forced now to wait until the Sabbath was over to anoint Jesus' body, which would have been preferably done before the burial. So these women get up early. On the first day of the week, which was Sunday, the day Jesus was resurrected from the dead, as we'll see, which, by the way, is why the Christian church gathers and worships in the mornings on Sundays, which uh, people, some people still refute that today. That's actually recorded in ancient Jewish rabbinical writings. I was looking at the Midrash in the Talmud this week where they refer to Sunday as the day of the Nazarenes or the day of the Christians all the way back then. And, and these women go and then and purchase myrrh and aloe and other precious expensive spices and oils to anoint Jesus's body, which just to be clear, uh, was not for the purpose of preservation or embalming, as was the practice in Egypt at the time, but rather to simply perfume the body as an act of devotion. It also uh, ha had the practical benefit of covering up the foul odor from decomposition. And it's not uh, uncommon in modern archaeology to find first century Palestinian tombs that contain empty perfume bottles and ointment jars and glass and clay oil jars that were used for that very purpose. And so along the way to the tomb now with their spices and oils, these women are discussing their concern about how they're going to access the burial chamber in the tomb because all of their big, strong male disciples are at home cowering in fear and hiding out because they still don't believe that Jesus was going to rise from the dead like he told them he would. And so the conversation between these women is focused on who may be around there to help them move the giant stone blocking the entrance. Yet when they arrive, much to their surprise, the stone has already been rolled away. Mark doesn't tell us how the stone was rolled away, but Matthew does in his account of this same story where he explains there was a great earthquake and an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Matthew 28, 2. And so the women, seeing that the tomb is open, go inside and find a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. Matthew says his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Matthew 28, 3. Uh, not surprisingly, Mark says that these women were alarmed. 
which actually is a grossly inadequate translation of the original Greek word used to describe the state of profound distress and terror that these ladies were actually experiencing. In fact, the ancient Greek word that Mark uses there to describe their state of mind at the tomb, when he says they're alarmed, it's the same Greek word that he uses to describe the distress that literally almost kills Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane back in chapter 14 when he says, I, I am distressed unto death just before he was arrested and crucified. So the angel says to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Uh, it's noteworthy here that the angel says to the women, go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee, right? But why the disciples and Peter? I thought Peter was one of the disciples already. Well, interestingly... You may remember from our discussion at the beginning of this gospel that Mark was not one of the 12 disciples, but he was Peter's personal writer, Peter's personal scribe, like a secretary. And that fact, coupled with many accounts from the early church fathers attesting to Peter's involvement in feeding this information to Mark for the writing of this gospel, and also uh, there are a myriad of plentiful clues throughout the gospel writing itself uh, that this was, in fact, coming from Peter, it becomes very clear, and it is gen uh, generally accepted by scholars, that the material in this gospel has come from Peter to Mark. And, of course, Peter was one of the 12 disciples. And yet, at this point in the story, Peter probably believed that he had disqualified himself from being one of Jesus' disciples, right? He, he had denied and arguably blasphemed Jesus in the courtyard, during his trial, which was almost certainly conveyed to Mark, who's writing this gospel account. And so knowing Peter's state of mind, of course, the angel instructs these women to go and tell Jesus' disciples and Peter that Jesus is risen alive and well, meaning despite Peter's grave sin against Jesus, you're still included, Peter, in God's extraordinary plan, which should matter to all of us because it should give us great comfort when we stray from his plan for our lives as well. And so uh, the women leave and they say nothing to anyone for they were afraid, which wasn't an act of willful disobedience on their part, as we'll see. It was simply the result of a radical transformation that was taking place in their own lives in that moment. They, they were being changed profoundly, and in the process, they're left speechless. In fact, when, when uh, Mark says they were afraid, it's the same root word in the ancient Greek that describes Peter in chapter 9, verse 6 on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus appears in his glorified state with Elijah and Moses, and Mark says that Peter did not know what to say, for they were terrified which is exactly what happens to everyone who encounters the glorified Christ. They are initially left speechless, usually struck with utter terror, and always permanently altered. As John says in his own encounter in Revelation 1.17, when he sees the glorified Christ, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You see, when, when each one of these people 
finally believed that Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God, the glorified Christ, the risen Savior. They were speechless. They were terrified. And most importantly, they were forever changed, which is exactly what happens when you believe you change. You don't stay the same. Look, you can't stay the same because of the extraordinary revelation of the glorified Christ in your own life. Everything changes. It has to. You cannot truly believe that the spirit of Christ who conquered death and the grave lives inside of you and yet remain unchanged. So why are there so many Christians living as if they are unchanged? Like the rest of the world who has not yet had a revelation of the Christ. Well, listen, if that's you, you understand it's not because you haven't been changed. Okay, if you're in Christ, you have been changed. Do you understand? If you've been truly born again, then you have been changed. You have been transformed by the power of the Spirit of Christ within you. All right, Jesus died on the cross once. He's not going to do it again. Because once was enough to set you free from every sin you have ever committed and every sin you are ever going to commit. If you're a Christian, you have been transformed whether you live like it or not. The problem with us isn't, the problem isn't that you haven't been changed. The problem is you don't believe it. Okay, there are stories of soldiers at war who've been captured by the enemy and held for extended periods of time as prisoners of war. And during that captivity, their captors would repeatedly fool them into thinking they were being liberated by their fellow soldiers, only to find out as they jump to their feet and run out of the prison, absolutely overjoyed and celebrating that they're being set free, that it was all a cruel joke, a ruse intended to break their spirit by their captors. And it's done over and over and over again enough times that when their fellow soldiers actually do show up and liberate the prison camp, the captives refuse to get up and leave the prison. And it's not until great effort has been made over a period of time to convince them that they actually have been set free. Finally, once they they believe it, they get up then and leave that prison. I'm telling you, there are a lot of Christians today who are living in a prison of lies that they believe about themselves, even though they have long since been liberated from those lies by Christ. And yet they live as if nothing has actually changed, as if they're still captive to their old life. The Apostle Paul, referring to every single Christian, said... But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that he might, we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Jesus said, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed, John eight thirty six. okay? If you're a Christian and you are not living an extraordinary life in his service, it's not because there's something he still needs to do in your life. It's because you don't believe what he's already done in your life. You've been liberated 
from your old self, irrevocably transformed into a new creation. And as we're going to see in this story, you've been given extraordinary gifts to enable you to live an extraordinary life in service to Christ. And yet not one bit of that will do you one bit of good if you don't believe it. Because what you believe shapes the way you live your life. The truth is, he died a horrible death so that you could live an extraordinary life. And then he rose from the dead and walked out of that tomb, setting free once and for all from the captivity of your old self and your old life, everyone who is in him. You, you can believe what he did for you and what he says about you, namely that he rose up from death in the grave, so you can too. You can believe that and get on with living the extraordinary life he created you for, or you can keep believing that nothing has actually changed in your life and continue to live as if it hasn't, even though everything has. See, that's a choice you have to make. And I just want to be certain you understand this. If your life is not where it should be or could be today and you have been born again in Christ, listen, you're not waiting on God to change your life, even if you think you are. You're not. Because He has already changed your life. But you have to believe that. You have to embrace that extraordinary truth because only then can you begin to live in the reality of it. Pastor and author Adrian Rogers said the same Jesus who turned water into wine can transform your home, your life, your family, and your future. He's still in the miracle working business, and his business is the business of transformation. Let's keep reading verses 9 to 13. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. So while these women are still in shock over the news that Jesus has risen, he appears to Mary Magdalene, uh, as also attested to by John in his gospel account in John 20. Uh, 11 through 18, and then Jesus reveals himself to two others, uh, which Luke also includes in his gospel account in Luke 24, 13 through 35. And although we don't know much about those two people on the road to Emmaus that Luke describes, we do know that Jesus chose to reveal his resurrection first to women through an angel, and then also to reveal himself first personally to a woman, to Mary Magdalene. And we know that the disciples did not believe these eyewitness accounts because in first century Palestine, women were given little to no credibility when it came to eyewitness testimonies. Actually, even in court, a woman's testimony was considered equal with those of slaves and criminals, which makes the fact that Jesus chose to reveal himself first to women all the more convincing that the resurrection was true. Because look, if his disciples had fabricated the story of Jesus' resurrection, as many have claimed throughout the ages, the very worst way you would do that would be to attribute the first eyewitness accounts of that resurrection to a group of women in all four Gospels. 
You understand, if you're trying to convince people in the first century and even the immediate centuries that followed that a story you made up was true, if you're trying to convince people that, you, that a false story was actually true, the last thing you would do is base that story on the testimony of a woman because nobody believed the testimony of women at that point in history as evidenced by the, the disciples themselves here who didn't believe. And also, uh, just for an example, from long after the Gospels were written, there was a famous uh, second and third century pagan Greek philosopher, and he was an opponent of Christianity named Celsus, who wrote against the claims of Origen of Alexandria, who was a well-known Christian theologian and church leader at the time, who of course believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in his most famous work, Contra Celsum, or Against Celsus is what it means, Origen writes, that Celsus referred to the resurrection story as nothing more than the gossip of women about an empty tomb. Okay, here's the point. Mary and these other women weren't stupid. Far from it. They knew exactly what their testimony was worth in the eyes of men in the first century, and yet that didn't stop them from telling everyone they could about it, as any of us would. Why? Because they watched him being nailed to a cross. They watched the soldiers pierce his side. They watched him gasp his last breath. They watched him being buried in a tomb. And now he's standing there, alive and well, talking to them. Of course you would tell everyone you know. Whether or not they believe it is almost irrelevant, and it's certainly on them. That's still not going to stop you from telling people the truth about Jesus. Because listen, when you believe, you share it with others. Right? I've told you this before. If your spouse or your best friend were to die, and you went to the funeral and the graveside service, and you watched them being lowered into the ground, buried in a casket, and then three days later you decide to go visit that grave site to pay your respects to your best friend or your spouse. Except when you get there, you find that the grave site has been dug up and is now empty. Think of the utter shock you would feel looking at that empty grave. But then as you're walking back home, completely devastated by this unlikely turn of events, your best friend or your spouse walks up beside you, full of life and in perfect health. Are you going to keep that to yourself? Now, without question, that event would define every single day of the rest of your natural life. You would never not talk about it. You would never pretend it didn't happen. You would never try to distance yourself from the reality of it. It wouldn't even matter to you that it made some people very uncomfortable every time you talked about it or that they flat out didn't believe you. I'm telling you, you wouldn't care one bit what anyone else ever thought about the fact that you believe it to be true because you would know it was the truth and that's all that would matter right the the reality that your best friend or your spouse was dead and then came back to life three days later that would shape the rest of your life no matter what anyone else thought well look for the christian the reality of the resurrection of jesus christ should shape every single day of our lives. 
We should never not talk about it. We should never pretend it didn't happen. We should never distance ourselves from that reality, even if it makes some people very uncomfortable when we talk about it, because it's not just a story we believe in. It is the reality that we are living in, the single most important reality of them all. The fact that the same Jesus who was crucified 2,000 years ago is in fact alive and well today. If that is not true, then what we believe as Christians actually means nothing. But if it is true, then what we believe as Christians means everything. C.S. Lewis once said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Which, of course, begs the question, then why are there so many professing Christians reluctant to share this extraordinary truth about Jesus Christ? Well, I think maybe it's because we agree with the story of the resurrection. We agree that what we read about it in the Bible is true, but I'm not sure we believe in it to the degree that we allow the reality of that actually happening to shape our daily lives, to change the way we see God and the way we see ourselves, our own lives because of what he's done for us and what he says about us. Because I'll just tell you, once you come to grips with the fact that the spirit of the living God is actually trying to speak to you every day of your life and that he's trying to lead you where you need to go every day of your life and that he's trying to give you what you need to accomplish his will every day of your life. Once you truly believe with a deep conviction the reality that he is in fact alive and constantly unceasingly active in your life on your behalf, you begin to listen for and pay attention to his voice. You begin to follow his leading and you begin to receive what he's been trying to give you. And then everything about how you live your life changes dramatically. It has to, which is exactly what happened in the lives of those disciples. Once they finally believed in the reality of the resurrection, they began living a new reality. Everything about how they were living changed. In fact, The difference in their lives before and after the resurrection was extraordinary. But that doesn't happen unless you believe it. The reality that Jesus Christ is alive and well today, listen, it has to pervade every single area of your life. And one of the extraordinary changes that happens when you actually believe that is that you cannot help but tell other people about it, right? If your spouse rose from the dead after being in the grave for three days, you would hide that from nobody. You would tell everyone you could, whether they believed it or not. So why do we hide our own extraordinary encounter with the risen Christ from other people? I think we agree with that story in the Bible, but do we actually believe the reality of it to the point that our daily lives are shaped by it? Well, I'll just tell you one sure way to answer that question is simply to be honest with yourself about what you are sharing with other people because you understand we share 
we do share what we actually believe. We share with other people what we are the most passionate about. That's why so many Christians use social media and personal conversations and texts and memes and every other platform they possibly can to share with everyone they possibly can their beliefs about uh, political issues and governmental issues and the perils of pharmaceuticals and healthier ways to live and uh, our rights that are being slowly taken away from us in this country and the the next thing they want to buy, on and on and on and on it goes. And listen, a lot of that is really good information that actually should be shared. But here's the point. Why do we share all of that the way that we do and as much as we do? It's because the things we believe the most in are the things we are the most passionate about. And the things we are the most passionate about are the things we are most likely to share with other people. So what do you spend the bulk of your time sharing with other people in social media or in your conversations or however you communicate with people? Listen, if it's not Jesus Christ, then maybe you're passionate, more passionate about other things than you are about him. And if so, I'm just telling you, you're missing out on the most extraordinary journey, the most extraordinary life you could ever live, telling others about him. Because when you do that, first of all, uh, first of all, the trajectory of your life changes dramatically. He will lead you to places and people and circumstances you'd otherwise never dream of. And secondly, you will impact the world around you in the most extraordinary ways, ways you never could otherwise. But if you don't believe more than anything else that this is the life he's created you for and called you to and made possible by his death and resurrection, then you'll never be passionate enough about it to tell other people about him. Charles Spurgeon once said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Let's finish this gospel story. Verse 14 to the end. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves and, uh, as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So Jesus appears to the rest of the disciples and he rebukes them for not believing the others just before delivering the Great Commission. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And uh, notice how believing, according to Jesus, is the essential ingredient to accomplishing that great commission, to living the life that he intended for us to live. Verse 17, and these signs will accompany who? Those who believe. 
So Jesus says, for those who truly believe what I've done for you as you spend your life telling others about me, listen, I'm going to do extraordinary things in you and through you. You'll cast out demons, speak in new tongues, pick up serpents with your hands. If you drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt you. You will lay your hands on the sick and they will recover. In other words, as you give your life completely over to me and live out this gospel telling everyone you can about me, I will fill you with my purpose my protection and my power. He said these were the signs that would accompany those who believe. You see, according to Jesus, when you believe, you live an extraordinary life, a supernatural life, in fact, which is a promise he made good on for those early disciples, as Mark points out, after he'd spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere. These are the same dudes who were hanging out at home in the corner, scared to death, who wouldn't come out with the ladies to roll the rock away from the tomb. Now they've gone out and they're preaching everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Exactly what Jesus said would happen is what happened for those who believed. And the reason that should matter to us today is because Jesus doesn't change and his word never changes, which means what he promised to his disciples then, he promises to his disciples now, which also means one of the hallmarks of a true believer's life should be the supernatural purpose and protection and power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us as we live out the extraordinary life that he has called every single one of us to live. And of course, you understand, uh, you understand, we don't follow after uh, signs and wonders. Actually, according to Jesus, for those who truly believe, signs and wonders are supposed to follow after us as we minister to other people. That's what Jesus said would happen when you believe. Okay, it's an extraordinary life. The one that has lived for his purpose, under his protection, full of his power. It's unlike any other life we could ever live. And it is exactly the life he has created, called, and empowered you to live. But you won't experience any of it if you don't believe it. And the truly amazing thing about that is just how many professing Christians there are today who don't live that way. Because we believe what this world says about us more than we believe what Jesus says about us. And as a result, we have a tendency to try and live up to the world's standards for our lives instead of his standard for our lives. Author Linda Evans Shepard wrote, sometimes we forget we're on an adventure with the Lord and that his presence is with us. Right? That's exactly what happened with those early disciples, right? We We've now walked through this entire gospel together and we've watched these disciples all along the way experience the most incredible miracles and teachings and compassion and forgiveness and power of God right in front of them and often right through them. It was an extraordinary journey with Jesus and yet after all of that, just before he appears to them in person, after all that they'd experienced with him, there they are hiding out in fear, not only telling no one about Jesus, but sometimes even denying they know him at all. They're acting as if all that they'd seen and experienced firsthand with Jesus never happened because they didn't believe he would rise from death even though he said he would. They didn't believe he would send to them the Holy Spirit to change them, even though he said he would. 
And they didn't believe they would be living extraordinary lives of supernatural purpose and protection and power, even though he said they would. And it wasn't until they finally believed all of that, that they finally experienced the reality of all of that in their own lives. You see, what you believe shapes the way that you live. And so if, if, if you believe that Jesus died a horrible death so that you could live an extraordinary life, then listen, don't waste it. Don't waste it by believing, by not believing all of these things he says about you. The fact is, you've been given an extraordinary opportunity to live an extraordinary life. Don't let it pass you by. Take hold of what has already been promised to you and done for you by Jesus Christ. Take hold of that truth and live like the extraordinary person he says that you are when you believe. Let's pray.